I can only remember literally drawing a line in the dirt one time in my life. My two brothers and I were in a feud with those who were normally our friends who lived just up the hollow from us. Other kids in the hollow got involved. Some sided with the Bailey boys. Others sided with those who were against us. And after everyone had chosen their side, I, the youngest of the group and the smallest, took a stick and I drew a line at the edge of our property. And empowered by those standing with me, feeling no fear, I lifted the chin of my spectacled face. I thrust forward my chicken chest, and I boldly proclaimed to the other side, if you cross this line onto our property, you'll wish you hadn't. And nobody did, <laughs> which is probably why I'm still standing here today this morning. <laughs> you know, probably my brothers would have joined with them and said, shut up. In any case, I don't really re remember what the feud was about. I have no memory of what started it. It didn't last long. But th this is what I do remember 50 years later. This is what I remember, how good it felt to make that proclamation, to be bold, to, to choose a side, to, to take a stand. felt so good. Listen, you and I, empowered by the Spirit of God, it can feel just that good for us when we take a stand for Christ. When we, without fear, declare whose side we are on. When we draw that line in the dirt of our lives. Our reality is that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of light and love. The kingdom of the world is a kingdom of darkness and death. Christ does not call any one of us to straddle the line between the two, to have one foot in one kingdom and one foot in the other. No, you and I, as disciples of Christ, must proclaim for Christ. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and come once again to discuss and talk about the table of the Lord. So if you have your Bibles with you, which I wasn't here last week, my Bible has disappeared. Someone bring me a Bible. It's not large print, so I'll make no promises. Thank you, Gray. So when you have your Bible, the one in the pew, not the one Gray just gave me, but uh, when you found Acts chapter 2, and then if you don't mind turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and when you found those two passages, let's stand together so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. As always, we ask your blessing on us. As we gather our hearts around your word, uh, empowered and inspired by by your spirit, uh, give us understanding. Father, you pray blessing where your word is read and heard. Bring that blessing. Give that blessing to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As much as I would like to do so, it's getting just a little bit unwieldy for me to try to recap the five sermons uh, that we've been together with concerning the Lord's Supper. This beautiful, ordinary means whereby God lavishes His grace on you and me. Verse 42 tells us, once again, as we've seen through the course of these weeks, that the early church was devoted to the Lord's table. We know from Scripture that the early church was gathering for worship just for the purpose that they might share the Lord's Supper together. And so we've been looking at reasons for this devotion to the Lord's table. For the ways the table of the Lord allowed his people to encounter Christ, to experience the presence of Christ with them, with us, his work in them and in us as we come around the table. This morning, I'm going to just dive right into to another reason for the devotion to the table of the Lord. And it is this feel-good, declarative nature of the Lord's Supper. The proclamation that accompanies it. As you heard, the Apostle writes, Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim the Lord's death. The word proclaim means to make known in public. Make known in public with the implication of broad dissemination. Now maybe we can understand what that means more by thinking of the opposite of these words. Public means not private, out and open, not hidden in secret. Broad dissemination means that lots and lots of people know, and not only a select, safe few. Now the benefits and the blessings of the Lord's table haven't been difficult to see in the the past five weeks. The past, present, future, presence of the Lord with us, beautiful. The mystery of the Lord's table as he works in us and through us as we eat and drink, beautiful. But you and I might have a a little more difficulty seeing how proclamation is a blessing, a benefit, a beautiful thing. It's a little counterintuitive to believe that proclamation, that drawing a line in the dirt is for our benefit and for our blessing, or that it's even a reason for devotion to the Lord's table, especially in the culture in which we live. We're much more quickly than I can even get my mind around. 
the things that you and I believe and hold dear are being labeled hate speech. Uttered by those who are now being labeled as domestic terrorists. Can you believe it? Or we think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or Nigeria or any of those people for whom John just prayed. On this very day, we wonder where the beauty and benefit is of proclaiming Christ in their culture. But these cultural realities are not unknown by the Apostle Paul. When he writes to the church in Corinth, the words that we've just read, persecution had already come upon the church. Acts chapter 8 tells us that there arose on that day, the day Stephen was martyred, stoned for his faith, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The unconverted Paul himself was the chief persecutor of the church. Acts 8.3 tells us that he was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 tells us that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Perhaps Paul was even worshiping, uh, entering their worship services, spying on them, taking note of those who boldly went forward to proclaim the Lord's death by eating the bread and drinking the cup. But then, we know what happens, don't we? The moment when Paul saw the glory of Christ and he was undone. There's the apostle Paul on his knees, perhaps on his face before the glory of Christ. He crossed over the line, rescued by Christ, carried by Christ out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now and forever, Paul would be on the side of Christ. He drew his own line in the dirt and he boldly proclaimed, I am for Christ. And what did that proclamation lead to for the Apostle Paul? Persecutors dogged his steps wherever he went for the rest of his life. Paul was let down in a basket through a window to escape those who sought to kill him. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned to death and left for, stoned and left for dead. Paul writes about his frequent journeys, and he said he was in danger always, in danger from his own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger from false brothers. And in spite of all that, in spite of the fact that it was not safe, the Apostle Paul still gathers disciples of Christ together to eat the bread, to drink the cup, and to proclaim Christ. We wonder why Paul just didn't stop proclaiming, stop declaring for Christ. In light of all the persecution, instead of drawing a line in the dirt, why did he take his foot and just erase? <laughs> erase the line that he had already drawn. Okay, Lord, I didn't really mean it. Easy answer. Because Paul had lived in both worlds. He had experienced them both. The one without Christ and the one with Christ. And there was no comparison between the two. 
There was no Christ life in the other world. No Christ power. No Christ love. No Christ compassion. Only chaos and confusion. And neither could Paul find a reason to have one foot in one kingdom and one foot in the other. No peace could be found in that. The other world could never add to but only distract from the glory and the goodness that Paul perpetually saw as he fixed his gaze on Christ. And as he found in Christ the real meaning and the real purpose for life. Having experienced that, Paul seems to have lost all interest in having a comfortable life, a life free of clashes with his culture, a life where he attempted to accommodate the culture, to blur the lines between Christ and culture so that they really didn't seem so far apart, so that he could be comfortable in either one. No way. Paul says, eat the bread, drink the cup, draw the line, proclaim for Christ. You and I need to know, and you probably already do, that Christ is always countercultural. Do you know that? Christ is always countercultural. He's always a line drawer. He came to earth to be countercultural precisely because the culture of this world without Christ is not a culture of life and light. It's a culture always of darkness, death, and decay. It needs rescue. It needs Christ. Our culture, do you believe it? It needs rescue. It needs Christ. Follow the scripture. The life of Christ. Simeon takes up the eight-day-old baby Jesus when he comes to the temple. And Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And he said to Mary, A sword will pierce through your own soul, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Christ was born to be countercultural from his birth. The person of Christ is the sword that draws the line in the dirt before Jesus sends out the twelve for their first ever ministry experience. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Have no fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He goes on to say, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Christ is counter-cultural. Now, we don't know how Christ spoke these words. I think that often the assumption is that he spoke them with anger, with fire, and brimstone. But could not he just as easily have spoken these words to his disciples with tears in his eyes? Tears for the reality of the way the world is, how far the world and the people in it had fallen from what God had created as so good. Tears 
that people will still choose their own way over God's way. Tears that people will refuse to bow before a good and a gracious God. Tears that those who will not bow will reject those who do. In any case, Jesus draws a line in the dirt. There can be no we with the world. He tells his disciples in the upper, no, excuse me, Luke chapter 11. Whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus draws a line in the dirt. For me or against me, we cannot be we with the world. In the upper room, he tells the disciples, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, countercultural. Later that evening, he prays to the Father, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is a line drawer. Jesus sets forth us and them. And no matter how much our culture may decry that, no matter how much they label it hate speech, listen, there can be no we with the world between disciples of Christ and those in the world. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. And they're also the words of the disciples who followed him. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Apostle Paul writes, Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. To tell you the truth, it makes me a little uneasy that we don't have time to look more closely at these verses or to talk about the relationship that we are to have with this world or the kind of gospel-driven, grace-filled people that we are supposed to be in this world. I don't offer them, and, and I pray, Lord, don't let anybody use these to promote angry separatism. Okay, I'm not doing that. Do you all hear me on that? Not trying to create angry separatists. I offer these verses simply because they clearly demonstrate that you and I, as disciples of Christ, must draw the line and the dirt. We must boldly proclaim there can be no we with the world. And yet, you and I are perpetually, incessantly exposed to a worldview that is not consistent with faith in Christ. And little by little, that exposure chips away at us, at the way we think, at what we believe, how we act. Little by little, 
before you know it, even we begin to accommodate the culture. You and I, at times, tempted to blur the line or erase the line that distinguishes us, that separates us from our culture. So we think that Christians will be and look and Christian life will seem more palatable and acceptable. The desire to reach our culture for Christ, it's a good one. But we must accomplish it in Christ's way. And his way is not with blurry lines. His way is not with fluid lines. It's not with one foot in the kingdom of this world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And this is the reason that you and I must be devoted to the table of the Lord. After Kathy and I stopped homeschooling our children, each morning before the kids left the house for Christian school or magnet school, Kathy would say to them on their way out the door, remember whose you are and where you're from. And by that, she didn't mean you belong to Craig and Kathy Bailey. You're from West Virginia. No. She meant you were a child of God, born of heaven by the Spirit of God. Once Adam, Kathy dropped him off at the bus stop, got out of the car, he went to the bus, he came back to her one day, he said, Mom, you forgot to say something. Why did I forget to say? Remember who you are. Now, this will come as a surprise to you, but Kathy started to cry. <laughs> and she told Adam those words once again. Kathy posted those words this week on our family WhatsApp channel. And Claire responded, Mom, one of my favorite things you say ever since I can remember. See, when you and I come to the table of the Lord, we remember whose we are. And we remember where we're from. I proclaim to myself and I proclaim to you that I belong to Christ, that I belong in his kingdom. And that's my eternal home. And, and you proclaim the same thing to me. And so when we come to the table of the Lord, we redraw the line. Every time we come, we redraw the line. A line that might have gotten blurry, or at times disappeared altogether since the last time we were together around the Lord's table. So when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember that we must not, we cannot successfully live in both kingdoms. We proclaim that Christ died for us, that he has exclusive rights to our hearts and our devotion, that we belong in His kingdom. And what a blessing that Spirit-empowered proclamation is to us. It feels so good to make it, to say it out loud. It brings such peace. Look, look, what do you and I call it? How do we describe it when we don't know what to do? When two choices confront us, what do we say? We say, oh, I'm torn. I'm torn. I don't know what to do. And, and that word describes how we feel, right? Torn. In turmoil. 
The Lord's Supper draws the line in the dirt for you and for me. It brings peace in our lives because we proclaim boldly whose we are and where we're from. So it's a blessing. It brings peace to our lives. It settles it for us. And listen, you don't come to the table of the Lord alone this morning. You, You and I, we come together. And we come together and Christ himself meets us here. And no one knows better what it means to be at odds with this world than Jesus. No one knows more what it means to be at odds with the philosophy of the world, the ideology of the world than Jesus. He knows. He meets you here. In your own strength, you might feel like a speckled, spectacled, maybe speckled, skinny, chicken-chested, weakling, fearful, too weak to stand for Christ, to proclaim for Christ. But listen, he doesn't ask you to do it on your own. You do it in his presence and with his power and the strength that you receive from the table of the Lord. So this morning, right now, you and I come to this table with this prayer on our lips. Lord Jesus, help me to draw the line and boldly proclaim for you. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would answer that prayer of our hearts now as we come to your table. Help us draw the line and be bold proclaimers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.